Um, today is a pretty historic day for us because behind the scenes we have been working for quite some time to reimagine, rethink some of the structural changes that we want to do in the context of sanctuary. There are things that affect more of the behind the scenes than affect what happens in week in and week out in the services. So um, some of you won't really be aware of it that much. But tonight we're kind of laying out what is actually taking place um, We've been working on some of these things for a couple of years. One of the main focuses of my sabbatical that I've been taking since uh, August 1st is about what we're going to be talking about tonight. And so I would really love if you would sort of uh, set that time aside to come and sit and listen, be able to have time for questions and answers and be able to discuss it with you. We've not only been working behind the scenes as a staff, we pulled a, a, a kind of a sampling of people from the congregation about five or six months ago and began talking about what we're doing, what we're proposing to do, what we're thinking about, and sort of got a response from what we thought was in this kind of a temporary council of sorts, saying, if we did this, what would this look like? How do you feel about this? Blah, blah, blah. So we'll share some of the responses we got. We feel like we are on track for something that's congruent and consistent with what's been happening in our hearts for some time here in this community, but we're painfully, not painfully, expectantly and cautiously aware that unless the Lord builds the house, that they labor in vain who build it. And so this is not our church. This is his church. And we're, we're very, um, as we move forward in any kind of thing, we're always a little bit you know, reflective, very reflective really, and a, a little bit cautious to make sure we take a step and then listen. Take another step and then listen to make sure that we're not violating something that we feel the Holy Spirit will want for our voice in this place. Beautifully, I think churches have, uh, according to Revelations, churches in different places are like candlesticks and they have a voice for Christ in that particular area. So we're not the only church in this community. We're not the only ones heralding the kingdom of God and carrying his grace. But we have a role. We have a bit of a candle about us, and we want to be faithful to that. So some of the things that we'll be sharing tonight, I hope that you'll be here because they're, they're important. Um, the last 13 years, most of you are aware that we've been kind of an eclectic community. What I mean by that is we've been very open to other kinds of streams within the context of historical Christianity. Um, there's, there's so much joy and so much good in evangelical life and charismatic life. There's, but, but there was a sense that there was more. I had that sense growing in me uh, around uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I began to think, there's something that's not quite enough. And uh, I, I almost felt like the, um, the guy panning for gold you know, in the river and running into little nuggets. And, and you keep panning and running into nuggets. But you know, you, after a while, you start thinking, these have got to be coming from somewhere. Right? These little nuggets, are going, and then you look up, and there's a mountain. You think there might be gold in them hills, you know say, and so you hike up into there and start digging, and then you run into this vein. That's kind of the, I guess, the way I would explain my experience as an evangelical, as a charismatic. The joys of finding nuggets and life in the river, and then realizing, wait a minute, this came from somewhere, and going back into the historical church and listening to the early. Fathers and uh, reading the conversations that took place and the kind of uh, traditions that were at play historically. And you find out there's tons of gold in those hills. Looking at the Greek Orthodox and the way that they address mystery 
and the beauty of that, looking at the Roman Catholics and how there's a kind of beauty that they carry, and looking at the Anglicans and their liturgy and the Protestants as they emerge, the audacity of Protestantism and uh, uh, charismatic life and evangelical life, all of those things are absolutely wonderful. And, and, and our feeling is that we should have a, and, and move toward a very generous orthodoxy and, and grab the best of what we can and move toward each other. Um, one of the sad things about Protestantism, I think, that, that many of us are pushing back against is it's a beautiful thought, but it ends up problematic if you're not careful. And that thought is the church is in constant need of reform. And even though that's true, and people everywhere believe the church is in need of reform, the difference is in a Protestant, if you're just Protestant in your view, that is what justifies us fragmenting from each other. The church is in need of reform. If you're not open to it, we're going to start another church. The church is in need of reform. If you're not open to that, we're going to, we're going to start another church. And so what ends up happening is we have a fragmentation from what used to be about one stream in a thousand turned to two streams uh, until 1500 is now there are over 40,000 denominations in Christianity precisely because of this idea that if we find something that needs to be reformed, we have the right to split from each other. Well, the kind of impulse that we've embraced is this notion that, yeah, the church is always in need of reform, but we're going to reform while we hang on to each other. And that's called Catholicity, not Roman Catholic, but Catholicity. Catholicity means a commitment to oneness, a commitment to the fact that we're called together as one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and that we should be more aware of the fact that we're family than what our divisions are. Just like in your natural families, you know all the weirdos God put in your world, right? And yet you hang on to each other precisely because you're family, right? Even though you don't agree politically all the time, even though you don't agree with a lot of things, you hang on to each other irrespective of what's going on. So this kind of commitment to Catholicity and uh, uh, moving toward each other is kind of what sanctuary has been embracing for all of these years. And this next step we're going to be taking has to do in the light of that. But um, we're going to go into that tonight. Today, I, I have a friend of mine, Bishop Quentin Moore, his wife Annie's with us, and um, I asked him if he would come because of what we're dealing with and what we're processing, if he would come and talk to us about this notion of Catholicity. He's not a Roman Catholic. He's an evangelical guy, uh, deeply steeped in an organization that is uh, historical and uh, embraces uh, kind of that generous orthodoxy I just described. And um, I wanted him to talk about the notion of the call of Jesus for us to be one and how our greatest commitment after our response to our Lord is to hold on to each other. So before he comes, would you stand up and let me read the gospel to you for the day? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus praying to the Father. John 17 and 20, he says, my prayer, I don't think we have it up there, so just listen. My prayer, Jesus says, is not for them alone, Father. Talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So he has us in mind at that moment. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That kind of Trinitarian unity, deep. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them 
you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The word of the Lord. Bishop Quinton, would you receive him? Welcome. Grace and peace this morning. How you doing? It's been like uh, 10 degrees the last several Sunday mornings I've been preaching at home, so this is a real respite for me. Uh, greetings to everybody here, to Brent, to Paul, to Jonathan. My wife's with me, um, so she can correct anything after service, and i got to take these off. I have this new pair of glasses. You ever had new glasses? Uh, okay. And, and they put bifocals in them. And uh, you ever, you ever, if you've never worn bifocals, I, they put them on me and I, I walked out the door and headed to my car and I heard these kids giggling at me. Kids, anybody under 30. And I heard them giggling at me and it dawned on me, I caught a reflection of myself in the glass there and I was doing this. <laughs> and it looked real. And you know, you, whenever you see yourself do something really stupid, you just laugh, Right. So uh, I'm here this morning to try to help you put on a new pair of glasses. I'm here this morning to help you to be able to see through a different prism, to be able to maybe imagine uh, church, the kingdom, brothers, sisters, in a little different way. And see, we're all fit with glasses, and we all have an imagination that is limited or enlarged by our experiences in life. So I'm a recovering Pentecostal. Not fully recovered. I'm a recovering Nazarene. I married a Disciples of Christ girl. I went to a Lutheran seminary. I got filled with a charismatic movement in the late 70s. Uh, I'm a mutt. And um, I'm not what you think. So uh, most of the 35 years of ministry that I've been allowed to be involved in has been this journey of discovery of how does that all fit together? And rather than being opposed to one another, what is it that we could draw from each one of those streams that would add to the depths of our spirituality? And Christianity is nothing if it's not a a spirituality. If Christianity is merely an experience on Sunday morning and it doesn't deepen our experience with Christ and with one another, then our spirituality is rather shallow. And a number of years ago, as I was pastoring a church in Kansas, yay, KU, uh, the Royals, the Chiefs almost were red, uh, it began to dawn on me that the smaller the tribe or the smaller the worldview that your expression had, the smaller your imagination. And the smaller your imagination, the less you could see an experience of the kingdom of God that is so great and so grand. And I found that little verse that Paul writes to about above and beyond anything we can ask. And the NIV says, or imagine. And and one of the greatest, one of the greatest, I have to be careful now because he's old enough to, one of the greatest theologians I've ever met, uh, Bubba Ray Faulkner, uh, he took Papa shopping a few days ago and we went in. And you know little boys have GPSs to toys, Internally, Do you walk into the mall and they know where to go to every toy? And so we went to the toy area and after about 30 minutes of him picking every toy up and looking at it and turning it like this and he'd put it back and I'm frustrated. I'm thinking, son, I got 20 bucks. Blow it. And I said, 
Bubba, what are you doing? He said, uh, Papa, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I said, you're what? He said, I'm thinking about how I would play with this toy. And I stood there. And one of the greatest theologians that I've been exposed to, Bubba Ray, said, Pops, I'm using my imagination. I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps you need to use your imagination. And you need to perceive and see through the prisms of the kingdom of God how that everything you've experienced up to this moment as a church called Sanctuary might come together in a beautiful broth of your own chicken soup. And that the taste would become just as poignant as you allow yourself to filter in those herbs and spices of your whole imagination rather than the tribal one that you've probably had. Uh, you know, some of the opening words of Christ were, I must be about my father's business. And no one quite knows what that family business is. And then in the final prayer in John 17, you hear him asking the father to solidify the unity, to make the wholeness that exists within the Trinity a reality for you and I. That wholeness that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit where they, if you've seen me, you've seen him. That there is not this distinctive identity that we strive for in the West, but rather this intent to lose my identity in us and to allow us to become one rather than to remain independent. You see very clearly that after three and a half years of ministry that the Father's business is about the reunion between God and man and the regifting and the reformation and the recreation, if you will, of the soul of a human being that is not drawn away by its own independent desires but becomes rather dependent upon the one that created and called him in his image. And so this notion and this idea of unity goes beyond our shells of agreement that we write with one another. I love Amos. How can two walk together unless they agree, unless each one of them has a foot in a gunny sack, right? Uh, so agreement we learn on the playgrounds of grade schools, how we somehow bind one another together with something and we kind of stumble forward on the basis of human agreement, but that's not unity. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus makes this statement about if two or three of you agree on earth, right? Which really means, pray for me, I want a new car. <laughs> but that, that's really not what this thing unity is. I've gone through those phases and those tribal expressions, but I think Psalm 133 describes it in its clarity as the psalmist is saying, how precious, how precious. This, this good, pleasant unity that the brothers have, it's, it's precious. It's like oil dripping off the beard. I mean, come on. I, I'm, I have these one or two friends in my life, and it's like we pick up the phone, and all of a sudden, we really are connected somewhere beyond our own, and, and you're unified, and you can kind of feel his breath, and I can feel his thoughts, and we kind of move in unison. 
that sense that there is something beyond my mental agreements. It's that old song. I know it. I can only imagine what it'll be like. We sang that a lot 10 years ago. So I want to play with you this morning because I'm convinced that unity is the key to world evangelization. I'm convinced that not our doctrines, not our worship styles, not the latest, greatest thing is the key to opening the eyes of the world to the reality that God loves them. I'm convinced that we're all doubting Thomases. And until we can see it, we're not going to believe it, right? There's never going to be peace between a Protestant and a Catholic. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. I have friends that are very deeply Roman Catholic. I have friends that are very deeply Orthodox. I have friends that are very deeply Baptist, very deeply Lutheran. I have come to realize that if you're willing to be a friend, you can have friends. One of my favorite writers is a man by the name of Julian Barnes. Anybody know Julian Barnes? He's one of the greatest atheistic writers of the moment. And I love a line in one of his opening books. He said, I don't believe in God but I miss him. I know lots of people that don't believe in the church or unity, but they miss it. That sense of covenant, that sense of being one with God, that sense of something beyond myself. There's a movie out right now. It's up for about four Oscars. It's called Room. And Room, uh, not to be mistaken with The Room, that's an older movie. Room. Room is a story about how a woman is captured and locked into this room. And in the midst of her captivity of about seven or eight years, she has a child. And the only world the child knows is the room. Limited by that expression. And so mother trying to create a world within that room. And this whole story goes on and on about how... Uh, he would speak to the items in the room and lives within the confines and the comforts and in the safety of this thing called a box. And then as they are delivered from that experience to discover there is a world outside the room. And that's scary. As much as you sit there and think, oh, that's good, it was scary. Because if all you knew was this, And all of a sudden, you found out that there are other people that light candles a bit differently than you do, that swing incense, that it's different. And that's scary. And so your first initial response to this great world is to run back into the room. We don't even know we're imprisoned. A number of years ago, as a really strong Pentecostal, I begin to discover that there are other truths that were foundational to the weaknesses that I possessed. That as a Pentecostal, I had weaknesses, God forbid. That as a Nazarene, as a Lutheran, I discovered that we all had these weaknesses, but that other expressions of the kingdom of God had strengths that complemented the life that I was living. And that if I would allow myself to consider and imagine that God had not given everything to me, that he had given something to somebody else who might help me and I might help them, suddenly my world became more stable than it was before. And my spirituality got deeper. And my time with the Lord got sweeter. You see, God calls to us not merely from our past as an echo of history. But God really speaks to us from our eschatological future. 
God really speaks from our future into our past and draws us towards that end. In the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, the metaphorical visit of God and Abraham for the fifth time telling him that he was going to have a child and they begin to leave and the Lord speaks to the Lord and makes these statements seeing that Abraham surely will be a great and mighty nation and all the nations will be blessed to him. I cannot hide what I'm about to do. If you ever perceive how great you are in the end, if you ever perceive the future that God has for you, you'll realize that God wants to speak to you today according to how you will really be out there. I believe we're in a moment of history that God is trying to get us to lean into the past, but to also hear the true prophetic voices of the future because in the end, we are one. In fact, I would suggest to you that Christ has already had his prayers answered and that we really are one. We just are a bit scared of that unity. And that today, as you make some decisions or listen to some comments, I would encourage you with about four thoughts. It's 9.15. How got time do I have? I'm good? Okay. I got four quick little thoughts for you, just real quickly. The blood. What if it really does wash away sins? I'm serious. What if there's power in it? What if Jesus didn't lie? And, and, and what if the Bible is true? And what if some of what your tribes have told you is really great? And that, that, that when he bled on the cross, that when that one died, we all died. And now we no longer live for ourselves. What if the blood really is speaking of something better than our denominational debates? What if the blood really is the loudest voice in the room? What if the blood crying out of the ground like the writer of Hebrews says really is saying, hey, you're forgiven. And the guy that we follow who's famous for forgiveness, maybe we should be too. I would suggest to you that ecumenically and that historically is that, well, put it this way. When you turn on the nightly news and you see them killing Christians... You do understand they don't ask them what church they belong to before they... That they don't ask what denomination they're a part of. They just walk in and if they see crosses and hear prayers and, and see them taking... They just kill them. They don't ask, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? You see, our enemy already believes we're one. Our enemy already says, yeah, you're all Christians. So if our enemy perceives us as one, might we not want to understand we are. And we're won by the blood. That it is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for every sinner that fundamentally calls us into this family that was initiated through Jesus Christ at a place called Calvary. I became aware of a story a number of years ago after World War II where the Vatican was moving to beautify a Roman Catholic priest in Germany because he was guillotined for having taught the catechism. And as the Vatican was doing its job to determine what he had done, they discovered that not only had this priest done that, but that he had an accomplice, and that accomplice was a Lutheran German pastor. So what are you going to do? Are you going to beautify the Catholic priest for teaching the catechism and being guillotined and not the Lutheran German pastor? 
it was one of the greatest history lessons of all time. So the Vatican made saints out of both of them. That upset a few people. Well, you'll get it in a minute. So I, my, my first thought is the blood, just the blood. I, I grew up singing this song, Were You There When They Crucified the Lord? It made me tremble, tremble, tremble. That comes out of Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and said, you crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't necessarily speaking to everybody who was on Calvary. He was speaking, you, sinner, you. When I hear those words, you, I was there when the Lord was crucified. His blood was for me. Listen, if that's true, then I'm one with anybody that calls Christ Lord. My second little thought is, what if the purpose of the Holy Spirit was not just to make me giggle? Oh, come on. Where am I? I'm in Tulsa, right? Okay. What if the purpose of the Holy Spirit wasn't just to gift me so that I could laugh? What if the purpose of the Holy Spirit wasn't just so that I could pray prayers? Have What, what if the purpose of the Holy Spirit was to unite me to the one that bled for me? What if the coming of the Holy Spirit, the hearing of the gospel in my own language was so that every nation, tribe, and tongue could hear the story of the good news of Jesus Christ through the blood that was shed and be united. What if the purpose of the Holy Spirit is ecumenicalism? I would suggest to you that the pneumological outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to result in our unity. And that if the Holy Spirit does not draw us into unity but divides us, it's the wrong spirit. And I discovered as a Pentecostal that my experiences Pentecostally had separated me further from the historicity of the church and that I had to get a different pair of glasses to view my spirit-filled calling. Am I making any sense? So I'm a recovering Pentecostal. I'm not, not a Pentecostal. I'm just recovering from the ideas of being separated from the general church. And that the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit was my brotherhood that I discovered through the love that was shed or brought into my heart by the Holy Spirit. And that all of a sudden I had this love for people that didn't walk and talk and dress and have the same liturgy that I had. So I hope I'm getting close to you to say perhaps the blood makes us one. Perhaps a view of the Holy Spirit being truly spirit-filled. When people today ask me, are you spirit-filled? I said, yes. And they want me to describe it. I said, I love you. The fact that I love you means I'm spirit-filled. Because if I wasn't spirit-filled, I would find something. Never mind. How <laughs> many... I know the context I'm in, at least I think I do, in terms of overall. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I love fire. I mean, you don't grow up in Oklahoma and Kansas and talk Pentecostal and not know something about how the fire fell in Topeka. I mean, come on. But there is this, this scriptural story about how when they saw the fire on the altar, they knew God was there. Don't let the fire go out. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God, right? 
There's something about him being fired from the loins up and fired from the loins down. And when he comes, he'll baptize you with fire. Listen, there is a fire in my bones today, not because of a marketing, exciting, inspirational, motivational thing that's the latest, greatest thing. There's a fire in my bone that is so ancient that when God comes, he causes you to be consumed with an idea. And I am consumed with the idea that we are brothers and sisters with everybody that acknowledges Christ as Lord. And though it may stretch the imaginations, I think I'll stay with Bubba Ray and think about it for a minute. Okay. Maybe my third thought. What if the reality of calling, the reality of ordination, the impartation of the care for the world takes place in baptism? What if... When we are baptized, we are received. What if it doesn't matter who baptized you? What if it's not about who baptized you or how much water they used or what words they said? What if our sheer obedience to the reality that we have gone under so that we can go up? I went to one of my friend's baptisms and I was finding everything wrong with it. They didn't sing the right songs, cry long enough. It was warm. You weren't baptized where I was baptized. Uh, and and, and at, while I was standing there being extremely critical, they started saying these words. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I'm going, you what? I believe in Jesus Christ God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, you're after that Mary thing. I believe in the Holy... And it dawned on me, I do too. And he's, he's confessing this. And they're pouring water. And I'm crying. Going, darn. He might know Jesus. Hmm. What, what if we are identified through baptism? What if, as they did in the early church, you went on the rolls for martyrdom as you were baptized? But they didn't care what you said out there, but the centurion stood here and took your name right as you were being baptized because that meant that legally Rome could use you for fodder. So the blood, the spirit, baptism. Hmm. When someone makes a distinctive public choice to believe that God uses physical things to convey spiritual realities, that God uses tangible substance and our obedience to it and our response to it and through it something mystical takes place and there is an ontological change in the life because I said yes and turned from, and something changes. I wouldn't argue with you what, just that something happened. And my fourth thought this morning is, really it's about Israel. It's about Jacob. And um, they were in a famine. You ever been hungry? It's interesting who you'll eat with when you're hungry. Oh, well. If you're really starving, you don't care who's sitting at the table. 
I've been in Africa a few times. If you're hungry, <laughs> scoot over. And don't you remember Israel sent his sons to get bread in Egypt? They go to buy bread, and while they're buying bread, they discover their brother. I'm suggesting to you that sitting down at a Eucharistic table, you, you, you go to get bread. I, I went to Rome a few months ago, and we, we went hoping to have bread. And in the hunger for bread, we discovered a brother. I can remember sitting in a Lutheran church as they were handing me the host. And I looked around, and I realized these people are family. It was no longer about whether I was allowed to, whether I was good enough to, whether I was in the right place. It was, no, no, in the bread I found my brother. I'm going, I'm going to suggest these four little thoughts to you. What, what if the blood really did work? What if the spirit of the living God unites us not only to God but to one another and it's not just the dispensing of these things that we've so been enamored by? What, what if that sacrament of baptism and that sacrament of eating together is what continually causes us to look to one another as valuable. As much like you are right now, as silent. You know, if you work all day with screaming coworkers, or in my case, a church full of daycare children. My, my oldest son and wife and two children have been living with us for 90 days. I'm not going home until they go get in their new home, which is <laughs> Thursday, right? We're actually not going to go home until Friday. Uh, there's this thing called noise fatigue. Have you heard it? You can just get emotionally exhausted by all the noise and the sound, and you just run into silence, and that's that concept. But you know, sometimes after I've been alone for so long, I'm looking for my success because I was created to communicate. And even silence itself becomes hard to bear. I actually believe this. About two or 300 years ago, I think the church got tired of the argument of unity and grew silent. And I understand that because today as I teach about unity, most people have... They've they just grown silent, not because they don't want it, but because you can't seem to get anybody to listen to you. I think that's the cry that's in my heart that I hope you hear. I feel like that little boy trapped in a room, just in this box, and all of a sudden you discover there's more than that box, and then you realize that out here is as challenging as being in the box that you have to journey through all the emotions that you may have and your prejudice and your fears and your concerns. I can't tell you the number of times I walk in a room and they go, are you Roman? No. Are you Anglican? No. What are you? Christian. A Christian that's trying to symbolize that there is something called unity. A Christian trying to symbolize that we are one. Hmm. James, John Dill, a friend of mine, 
pastor's old church in Arkansas. And a few years ago, you remember all those tornadoes came through and blew everything away, and it was horrible. It was really, really bad. I don't know, killed 432 people in one night or some crazy thing. It took him a few days to get around to all of his parishioners. And he gets out to this one particular guy, and the guy had like five chicken barns. And I don't know whether you've ever seen chicken barns in Arkansas, but there's like thousands of chickens in this barn. And there's this electric conveyor belt that drops grain, and they all they have to do is peck through their feet, pick up the grain. They, okay. And he, he went out there, and this, this friend of his says, come out here, I want you to see something. He picked up this whole chicken barn, slab and all, picked it up, dropped it over there somewhere. The barn was gone. Everything was gone but the slab. And it had been like four or five days, and almost all of the five or 600 chickens in the barn were dead. Not because of the tornado. They had died standing on the mechanical structure of that slab. Only four or five of these chickens had lived. Do you know why? Because they had gotten so used to being fed by the industrial design of raising chickens that they had hung on to those things and stayed on the slab. The barn was gone, but they had stayed there and starved to death. Only four or five chickens had been able to venture off the concrete slab and the industrial structure that they had become so used to feeding them for slaughter. But four or five ventured off the slab and began to eat, God forbid, worms. Or other barnyard fodder. I wonder if we've become so used to sitting on the industrial slabs provided for us to feed us with the mechanized systems of humanity that we are afraid to touch that which nature provides so that we could survive the storms of the 21st century. So I give you those few little thoughts as you discern your way forward. I'll quote my favorite theologian of all time. Just my favorite theologian, St. Avery. I was out in the yard one day with St. Avery. She's about four. (laughs) And we were swinging. And I was pushing her, and she was swinging. And she comes back. She has these beautiful blue eyes and this long blonde hair. She stops. She said, Pops. I've learned something. And I said, well, babe, what did you learn today? She goes, if I lean way back and I kick way forward, I go really high. Listen, listen, listen. Live in the tension of ancient history. And of future prophetic callings. Live in the tension of it. Because I promise you, as you start down this journey, there'll be this tension. There is. But if you lean way back and you kick really high, you kick really forward, you go really high. Blessings to you. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, 
or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.